I want to talk to you this morning about something that I know is one of your favorite subjects. Really looking forward to it. I want to talk about sin. Is that okay? If you happen to be one of those who feel the pulpit is not the place to talk about this topic, and there are those people, then I'm going to recommend please see Pastor Josh after the service. And he will be glad to straighten you out, I'm sure. You know, can I be honest with you? I'm really struggling this morning, and I'm not even sure all the reasons why, but um, I need to ask the Lord to help me. Would you just bow in prayer with me for a second? Lord, as your word tells us, I can't even know my own heart. But I ask that you will take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and let them be pleasing to you. Lord, please make up the difference in my inability to communicate effectively. I feel it so profoundly today. But I am so thankful that the Holy Spirit is able to take even the weakness of my lips, the frailty of my mind today, and can communicate truth, the truth of your word, and penetrate the hearts of people in a way that I would never have a hope of doing on my own. And so I thank you for your presence in this room today. I'm thankful that you are the faithful one who always, always, always endorses your word. And we're going to lift up your word even as we exalt the name of Jesus today. We prayed in your name and the church said. I'm going to take a particular approach that will take me just a little bit to unpack this morning. And I'm I'm going to ask you, if you will, just really give me your undivided attention and allow me. I'm going somewhere. Um, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to mentally kind of get with me here. And um, as I take this approach I'm going to take, and if all goes as planned, I will end up hopefully giving you a, the core message that I have prepared. So my path may seem unusual, but, but stay with me because we're going to go somewhere. It seems to be within the human experience for all of us that there is a desperate need to be sure that we are validated. Though we are each capable of defining that validation according to the specifics of our individual need, our desires, our wants, all of that, it is a common practice for most of us to somehow feel validated by that which we have amassed or that which we have gathered or that which we uh, now possess or have accumulated or, or to feel validated or how strong or how well represented we are as demonstrated by numbers. For example, with whatever subject you and I are discussing, if I can give larger numbers than you, then it should hopefully indicate that somehow I'm more important or more significant than, than you are if my numbers are larger than yours. Um, I speak as a fool this morning, but if I have a house with a, a two-car, uh, if you have a house with a two-car garage, then I'll be sure that you know that I have a, a house with a three-car garage, which, by the way, I don't. Um, if I learn that your house is 1,800 square feet, then I'll find a way to work it into our conversation that my house is 4,800 square feet, which, again, it isn't. Our need for validation 
will always push us to make our accomplishments known, to display our trophies, if you will, to talk about how many degrees we have, to talk about the house we own in Palm Springs along with the one in Scottsdale. Of course, we can't forget the one in Naples, Florida, okay? It just seems to be within all of us, no matter how well we may try to obscure it or to mask it, no matter how humble we find ourselves to be, it still is within us the capability, the need to be validated by our possessions and that which we have amassed. And then when you talk to people of my generation who have adult children and grandchildren, did someone say grandchildren? We have both of our granddaughters in the city with us this weekend. Hallelujah. But when you talk to grandparents, they're, they're pretty much the worst. They, They really love to talk about all that their kids have earned and gathered unto themselves in this life, and there seems to be a real streak of needed validation there. Where I'm going with this is that our need for validation and to feel important or better than will even cause us to enhance the facts or the numbers that we might give. How many know that that's possible? That was weak, but okay. Or maybe we'd prefer to use the word exaggerate a little bit. Some call it enhancing, some call it exaggerating. Let's call it what it is. It's flat out lying, okay? And the temptation is there every time we find ourselves, that temptation to enhance our story, to enlarge our numbers, uh, it's there every time we find ourselves in a position to try to make ourselves look better. It's the temptation that seems to be common to man, according to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which simply means this, that we're all susceptible to it. Now, I don't know about you, but do you ever get tired of facing the same temptation over and over and over and over again, whatever your temptation is? Does it not seem to you that the Lord has a way of putting His finger just directly on you or on something in you that you know good and well needs to be corrected and eliminated from your life, and He will then put you in situations where over and over and over again He exposes that sin in your life, and He seemed to not, He just won't let it go. Is that anybody else's experience? Just mine. Okay. And the Lord seems to be relentless in putting me into a test where I will have to overcome that issue, and if I don't, then He keeps on doing it and keeps on doing it, and sometimes I just wish He would give up on that one and try another one. Let's, let's work on something else. Kind of reminds me of the household cleaner called Formula 409. Has anybody in the house ever used Formula 409? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. You know why they gave it that name? You know the story? Just as a little visual aid to help you there in case you don't know what it is. Formula 409 got its name from the perseverance of the designers of the product. It's true. It took a lot of work over and over and over to get the, the, uh, the formula just right. And after 408 tries, literally, two Detroit scientists finally got the formula for their cleaner right. And that's why it's called Formula 409. You can check it out. It's true. I'm just hoping and praying that the Lord doesn't give me the nickname 409. (laughs) Dan has failed this test 408 
times. Let's put him to the test one more time, and let's call him Mr. 409. I don't want to be Mr. 409. Do you? All right. And yet here I am with my validation problem and my need to look better than I really should, and the temptation presents itself over and over and over to inflate the truth. And those of you who spent much time in and around the church will know exactly how this plays out with pastors and evangelists. All you need to do is attend any church convention, uh, whether that's the General Council of the Assemblies of God or the Southern Baptist Convention or the General Convention of Church of God, any of them, stand in the hallway and listen to what we sometimes refer to as preacher shop talk. And you'll hear the same questions all the way up and down the hall. There, it's being asked over and over. How many are you running in your church? And pastors do have a tendency to round up to the nearest 500, I've noticed. How many services do you have? Uh, what did your church give to missions last year? Well, uh, what, what's your annual church budget? How large is your staff? And the end result of that conversation is somehow supposed to lead to an understanding that if your numbers are impressive or you have numbers which are at least larger than the guy you're talking to, then you are somehow better at pastoring than he is. How superficial and how ridiculous. And yet I've seen it happen over and over. This might be a good time for me to say, though I can applaud and admire great work that leads to great results, I am often reminded that the numbers measuring stick is not the only way to evaluate the work of the kingdom of God. Some of the greatest pastors I have ever known, and their names and their faces flash in front of my mind as I speak, and some of the finest churches I've been aware of did not have numbers that would be impressive in the halls of a church convention. But the reality is that it is simply within all of us that need to be validated by our impressive numbers. Oh, evangelists, they, they, don't, they don't miss it either. They're subject to the same human tendency. Ask them how many people were saved in their last crusade, their last revival, and they'll be sure to give you a mind-boggling, impressive number. And I finally figured out early in life, that's where we, in church lingo, we came up with this phrase, oh, he is speaking evangelastically. Elastic stretch, you get it? Good morning, Bethesda. Just another way of saying he's embellishing the truth or he's stretching the truth or whatever. All because it's within the human experience to be validated by that which we've accomplished, that which we've amassed, or even the numbers of people over which we have some measure of influence. So it's clear to see that this tendency to validate our success, our worth by numbers is as much in the church as it is outside the church. And yet, all of us need to remember that the Holy Spirit will only anoint truth. John 16, 13, Jesus reminds us that when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. And I've just been reminded how serious God is about this idea of total and complete honesty. Not only is it, we all know this, one of the um, Ten Commandments to not bear false witness. It made it in the top ten there. 
But are you noticing, as I am, as we've been reading through the Pentateuch uh, throughout the Old Testament, we finished a week or so ago, I've, I've seen it in Leviticus. I know that we will see it coming up the next period of time in Job, Proverbs, Amos, and Micah. There's plenty of reference to the importance of measuring with accurate and honest scales. Did you read that with me? Very, very important that when something's being measured, it's measured with accurate and honest scales. It is important to the Lord that that with which you measure anything is to be upright, not deceitful, and completely honest. I'm going somewhere this morning. Will you go with me? There's someone in the Old Testament who became very interested in numbers, but it got him in trouble. His name was King David. I'm going to ask you to use this idea that I'm presenting as numbers and validation and whatever. Um, for some of you, it may be metaphorically for whatever sin it is that besets you. David had to learn his lesson the hard way because his counting got him in trouble. And that's the story we're going to go to. It was his counting the people when God did not want him to do that that put him in a bad situation. I'm going to ask you to go to the story with me from 1 Chronicles chapter 21. If you want to turn there in your Bible, your device, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's there where we find the Bible saying this. Now Satan stood up against Israel. Who? Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Who? Who moved David? Okay. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Now, I've made a point of it, but let's don't miss the fact that it's Satan who's tempting David to do this. Verse 3, and Joab, who was David's general, his right-hand man, said this, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. Maybe that's where evangelistically started. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? So Joab's trying to say, King David, really, are you sure you want to do this? And why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Hang on to this, folks. Verse 4, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave, gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1.1 million, a million 100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he, Joab, did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Huh. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly, David said to God, because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Why was that such a big deal? Why did that bring displeasure in the sight of Almighty God? Well, first of all, we already have established that it was induced by Satan. That would be one reason, a very good one. Secondly, 
There was a pride to this because in verse 2, David says, that I may know how many, how many they are. And I add to that by saying, because he wanted to know how many men uh, he had under his influence. And biblical historians will indicate that this was not only Satan-induced and not only pride-induced, but they would also say there was even greed involved in this because the more uh, men that he had, then the more he would receive in taxes from them. So he's counting to be sure that everyone is paying their taxes and the amount of income he's receiving matches the number of men that he has. So this, this act of counting, it's Satan-induced, it's pride-induced, it's greed-induced, but also I think there's one other thing that reason it was very displeasing to the Lord, because it suggested that David was relying more on his military capabilities. He wanted to measure his strength relying more on his military capabilities than on God's power. Selah. Inasmuch, there's something very, very humanistic about this act of David's counting. And we certainly know that it displeased the Lord. But Bethesda, the same problem can be true for you and me as well. When we have to make ourselves look good, when we exaggerate the facts to be sure we look better than someone else, I believe it is an offense to the God who has given you His promise. It's an offense to the God who has provided everything that you have and will ever have need of. It is offense to the God who offers all along the way His protection for you. When we start counting our assets and when we start making sure what we have amassed is what we think it ought to be and then exaggerating, essentially we're saying, God, you're not enough. What you have supplied is not enough. Your promise is not enough. Your provision is not enough. Your protection is not enough. And the judgment that came as a result of David's sin, we read in verse 14, where the Bible says, And so, we know the Lord's displeased. The Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell or died. 70,000. 70,000 men died as a result of this sin of David and that which the Lord declared to be displeasing to him. One of the first things I see in this when I read it, don't ever believe the lie that your sin, whatever it is, will affect only you and no one else. It's not true. The reality it is, uh, the reality is this, when we do, what we do does affect other people's lives, whether we like it or not and whether we believe it or not. We'll say things like, this is my life, it's nobody else's business, what I do won't affect anybody. It's not true. This is my body, these are my teens, these are my twenties, this is my time to sow my wild oats. And we give no thought at all about who or how many others will be affected. That's what sin does, church. It has this strange ability to present the lie that whatever you're doing will affect only you, as if you're living in some sort of a vacuum. In David's case, the story we just read tells us that David's sin cost the lives of 70,000 men. But the story is not over. There's more. 
I'm going to take you a few chapters later to show you what happened as we turn to 1 Chronicles 27 and see that David discovered how profoundly he had displeased the Lord. Because in this chapter, tucked away in some chronology and listing of names, we find kind of hidden in here, verse 23, some words that should stand out to us today. This is sometime later, and I'll make a point of this in a minute. We know this is within a year, no more than a year of chapter 21 that we just read from, where David had Joab do the county. It's within a year. First Chronicles 27, verse 23, now. But David did not count those 20 years of age and under simply because the Lord had said He would multiply Israel as the stars of heaven. Don't forget that. And look at one more verse with me, 24. What a shift we're going to see. Joab, the son of Zariah, had begun now to count them but did not finish And because of this, wrath came upon Israel, and then that number was not included in the account of the chronicles of King David. Very interesting to me. And here's what is clear to us. Just a few chapters later, and in the same year, David now did not succumb to the temptation to do as he had done before, even though he was facing a similar situation. So, there's an obvious question here. Why didn't David count the men this time? What was different? How did David pass the test of this temptation to know his assets and and what he had? And what is there for you and me to learn about not giving in to temptation? What is there for you and me to learn about making sure that we are not living a life that is in any way displeasing to the Lord? How do you break the pattern of having to repeat the same test over and over and over and over again? How do you finally break free from the need to impress people and inflate the numbers to make you look good? How did David do it? Well, let me tell you what David's motivation was not. We take the negative approach. This is not why David made the change. Consequences will never be powerful enough to help you defeat sin. Amen, Dan. Consequences will never be powerful enough to help you defeat sin. You cannot defeat sin simply by looking backwards and saying, oh, when I did that the last time, man, there was hell to pay over that. It cost me this. It cost me that. Therefore, I will never commit that sin again. It doesn't work like that. Consequences and the pain of paying them will wear off. And you will find yourself later on back in the same boat that got you in trouble. Am I telling you the truth? Consequences are not God's way of helping you to defeat sin. Because, Bethesda, once the sky clears and everything is back to normal, I can assure you that that temptation is going to come back to you again and again and again, and it will be in the same environment and atmosphere that you had it before because now the sky is clear when it comes again. And dear friend, you and I do not have the ability within ourselves to think, I don't want to pay those consequences again, so I'd better not do it. 
You want to know why we don't have that ability to do that or to say that? Because sin intoxicates and blinds us. Sin will hide your past from you. It will forbid any thinking of the future and will only allow you to focus on the, on the present and your momentary pleasure and emotions whereby you can think of nothing else. We don't think about people. We don't even think about our grandchildren or our children. We don't think about what just happened. We don't think of any of those things. We just think of what I can get right now that will please me right now and bring, bring pleasure to me right now or allow me to have some kind of emotional release right now like a fit of anger or rage. That's what sin does. Let me prove my point to you by reminding you of Pharaoh. This is also something we've read together in these last few weeks in our immersed Bible reading. Moses, you know, keeps asking Pharaoh, let my people go so that we can go into the wilderness and worship in our own way. Pharaoh keeps refusing and then starts this process of saying, of Pharaoh saying to Moses that he will let them go, but then time after time after time he reneges and God keeps sending judgment on him. And one of these times, the plague God sends is destructive hail sent down from heaven along with thunder and lightning in the seventh plague from Exodus chapter 9, uh, about verse 23. Then in verse 27, we read this, Exodus 9, 27. Then Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he confessed. The Lord is the righteous one because I have not let the people go. The Lord is the righteous one, and my people and I are wrong. Please beg the Lord to end this terrifying thunder and hail. We've had enough. I will let you go, and you don't need to stay here any longer. It almost seems like the moment of salvation for Pharaoh. He's finally getting it. The light has dawned. He's going to do the right thing. And then we go to verse 33. So Moses left Pharaoh's court and went out of the city. When he lifted his hands to the Lord, the thunder and the hail and the downpour ceased. So when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, the thunder had stopped, he and his officials sinned yet again. And Pharaoh again became stubborn. Because his heart was hard, Pharaoh refused to let the people leave just as the Lord had predicted through Moses, listen to me. When the sky is clear, he's back to the same old thing. And it can happen for us too. When the dust has settled and there's no more fear of going to jail, no more fear of her divorcing you, no more fear that you're going to lose your job or lose your position, no more fear that this affair is going to cost you your family, your life, no more fear, no more fear that, it, that anyone is going to truly find out what you're up to. Once the sky clears, it is amazing how quickly we forget and find ourselves back in the same situation once again. Truth? Pharaoh looks. He sees no more threat. So once again, he hardens his heart. And dear friend, in your own situation, there is coming a day, and my heart breaks for you in this, but there's coming a day when the sky is going to clear over your situation. Even your guilt will have dissipated, and you'll face the same temptation once again. 
And if you do not recognize that it was the mercy and the grace of God that brought you through it this time, you won't even think about the consequences next time. It is our human nature. I need to point something specific out to you in verse 24 as I go back to 1 Chronicles 27. Maybe you caught it when we were reading. The general of David's army, Mr. Joab, he was the one back in chapter 21 telling David not to count his army. He's now the one doing the counting here in chapter 27. Chapter 21, Joab said to David, don't count for God has blessed you. But now he's the one in chapter 27, about a year or less than a year later, going 4,962, 63, 64. And when you put this together and you read this and you understand the timeline, you almost wonder if you're reading it correctly. In less than a year of what just happened, and you're counting, it's not like 10 years have passed. And just think about this, 70,000 funerals, 70,000 burials did not deter Joab, David's right-hand man, from now counting. And just to put that into perspective, even if you buried people every day for one year, you would be doing 192 funerals per day of men who were killed for David's counting and his disobedience to God. I think that would have an impact on you. And yet Joab has the audacity one year later to count them in. Are you kidding me? What is he thinking? But you know what? This is reason, one of the reasons why my heart is heavy today. When I look at Joab, I have to realize that I'm not all that far from being the same way. None of us are. You and I have this amazing ability to blow past the consequences of our own sin. And yet, faced with the same temptation, we can so easily fall for it again and again. Have you ever known anyone who God has brought them miraculously out? After all the junk and all the tears and the finances it cost them or their family, bailing them out of jail, paying their bills so that something wouldn't be repossessed or foreclosed, pleading with their employer to keep them in their job so they wouldn't be unemployed, and God miraculously brought them through all of that, where God has maybe rescued your marriage, He's rescued your life, but then suddenly, all of a sudden, when the sky clears, we feel invincible. We're back to doing the same stuff again. And that's what we see here with Joab. And I have to ask the question, how did that happen? How did he go back to numbering the people after what he just saw a year ago? How does it happen that I'm capable of doing the same thing? And the only thing I can give you this morning to keep you from being like Joab is the only hope that you and I have. And it's the reason why we see a difference in David from chapter 21 to chapter 27. He was counting in chapter 21. Chapter 27, he did not count. I'm going to assume that there are several in this room right now who are wondering, so Pastor Dan, how, how do I get off the merry-go-round? How do I break the cycle of anger, 
cycle of lust, the cycle of deception, or whatever is whatever the sin is that so easily besets you. The answer to that is the same thing that was needed for David to stop, and it's right here in verse 23 of 1 Chronicles 27, and we've already read it, but I want to bring it to you poignantly right now. 1 Chronicles 27, 23, when David took his census, he did not count those who were younger than 20 years of age, and here's the reason, because... Because, because the Lord had promised to make the Israelites as numerous as the stars in heaven. There it is. God's promise, His provision, His protection. Now, look at it really closely. David did not count those younger than 20. David stopped exaggerating his numbers, and in so doing, David realigned his life with the will and pleasure of the Lord. Why did he not count those young men this time? Because of something that God had said in His Word all the way back in Genesis. He need not count because he had the Word of the Lord. It wasn't because of the consequences of the last time with the loss of 70,000 lives. Because consequences are a poor helper to get you to leave the merry-go-round of sin. Society may try to use consequences to control civil behavior. But it is not sufficient for the believer to leave the merry-go-round of sin. David made the determination that the Word of God is true. And that he would trust it above all others. And that the only person who needs to be impressed with him is God and God alone. That means that no matter what your numbers are, as long as you have the approval of the Lord, then who cares? Who are you trying to impress when God knows the truth? David remembered that God had given him a promise through Abraham hundreds of years ago. So why did he need to count? Why did he need to have his pride appeased when he could simply trust the God who had given his word about Israel? What God says and what God thinks about us is the only thing that matters. Because here's one thing you can count on for sure. Sin will always over-promise and under-deliver. But God will always keep His Word. God's promises are better than your plan. There's one verse. One verse, Genesis 15, 5, is all it took to keep David from counting. Bethesda, one verse can keep you from going backwards. One verse that you've taken deep into your soul can be the one thing that keeps you from falling into the sin that so easily besets you. That's why the enemy wants to keep you out of the book. Provide a thousand reasons each day to distract you from God's Word. Why? Because this book can keep you out of trouble. It only takes one verse to literally set you free in the name of Jesus. And one year later, it wasn't the loss of 70,000 lives. It wasn't Joab. It was, it was David remembering that God had given a promise in Genesis 15. And he believed in his heart that God would keep his word. Bethesda, why do we put the Lord to the test? Why do we put the Lord to the test? Have we not learned by now? 
better? It is um, Pastor Tony Evans from Dallas who has said, what does it mean to put the Lord to the test? It is to see how far you can go with God before He has to stop you Himself. How far you can go. It is pushing God's patience. It's when we don't stop until we get caught or until we see the consequences or bad enough consequences. And it's when you choose to no longer live by conviction. Bethesda, I am very concerned that we have reached a point in the church of the Lord Jesus where Holy Spirit conviction is no longer enough for us. We have established an American Christian culture that allows us full reign to navigate our way through life, ignoring the truth that we know from the Word of the Lord and ignoring the soft prompting of the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, please? This is one of those days, Lord, we have to peel back any facade that is there and really examine ourselves in your sight to see if there be any wicked way within us. It might even come as a surprise to us. It might be something that we would even consider small and insignificant, like counting the people. But it's important to you for reasons that we may see and we may not. Lord, I'm asking that as a people, and I stand before you representing these people today, that you will forgive us for allowing ourselves to no longer pay attention to the soft prompting of the Holy Spirit within our heart. That somehow this word conviction is almost been removed from our vocabulary and certainly from our understanding and from our daily living. For many of us in this room, it has been years since we've even recognized you were convicting us of our sin, whatever that might be. So I'm asking today, our Father, that you would forgive us. Forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. And that your grace would cover us. Lord, draw us back to you. Draw us back into that close communion with you where there's nothing that separates us from a holy God. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. Nothing. Because I've laid myself bare before you. And I've said, shine your searchlight on me, Lord. Because your word, your promise is more important than anything else that I would ever desire to do. David didn't need to count because he had the promise of God. That Israel would be as large as the stars in the heavens. 
He didn't need to do that. And that offended you. Lord, is there anything in us that has offended, anything in me that has offended you? Anything in us that has brought you displeasure? Does that even matter to us anymore? Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. Rend our hearts today. Rend our hearts today. I do want to ask if there's anyone in the room who wants me to pray for you specifically. I'll skip the part of asking you to raise your hand, but I'm going to say, if you're saying, Pastor Dan, I want to be clean before the Lord. And I want to be sure that nothing is between me and my Savior. And I, want my, I will confess my sin today because I want to be in right relationship. Some of you, it may be your first time some of you maybe have been in the church for years, been in relationship with the Lord for years. And I, this is not a, don't stand if you don't mean it. This is not that kind of an appeal. But I want to pray for those who are seriously saying, I want there to be nothing between my soul and the Savior. If that's you, would you stand please? almost feels like we should take our shoes off because we're standing on holy ground. Our sin costs the life of Jesus. To be crucified on a cruel cross. May we never, ever, ever take it You are always drawing us into yourself. So God, give us your grace today. I pray for those that are standing right before me today. God, you truly are the only one who know, you know our hearts. You know the sin that each of us should confess today. But we're asking, Lord God, as we come before you, that you will look upon every heart and that you will cleanse us. Those of you standing, repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I confess that I have sinned, but I want to be clean before you today. Therefore, my Father, I admit that I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe because of the blood of Jesus that today I can be clean. So cleanse me today, O oh God. For I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Everyone standing, please. There's an old hymn of the church. It says, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise.
Bethesda, I know this has been heavy today. It's a lot more fun to, things are lighter, I know. But this is why my heart was heavy today. I knew this had to be delivered. There's a verse in there in this hymn that I want to start with if we had the lyrics. It says, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Do we have those lyrics, Projection? Yes. I think we can sing it together. Come on. Here we go.